Desperate times call for desperate prayers. This is the idea behind this psalm, the reality of what David is feeling when he is penning Psalm 3. Desperate times call for desperate prayers. That little explanation that you see there in your Bibles before verse 1 tells us that David was writing this probably holed up in some cave somewhere in the wilderness when he was on the run from his son, Absalom. Now, why would a rich, powerful king be on the run from his own son? I mean, this is the same dude who was absolutely nonplussed by that giant Goliath. He walked right out, killed him, cut the dude's head, clean off. Uh, years before that, even, he'd killed a lion and a bear with his bare hands. Why is David afraid of one guy, Absalom? David is a man's man. What explains the fear in his heart? Well, first, you can tell that from our text, this wasn't just his son. Look at verse 1. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him, for David and God. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. How did David get here? Beloved King David on the run from his son and apparently many others who were in league with his son. Well, if we can rewind back a few decades in David's life, you could find this in 2 Samuel chapters 13 through 18. Um, but I'll, I'll just summarize it for us here. This is not right, but David had himself a whole bunch of wives. Uh, and with one of his wives, he had a son named Absalom and a daughter named Tamar. Absalom and Tamar. According to 2 Samuel 13, Tamar was apparently very beautiful. She looked a lot like my Miriam, I'm sure. Uh, well, David had another son besides Absalom with a different wife. His name was Amnon. Amnon was literally Absalom's brother from another mother. I saw that going a little bit better, but... <laughs> well, Amnon becomes obsessed with his beautiful half-sister, Tamar, and he sexually assaults her. And of course, this angers David, but shockingly, and grievously, I would say, he doesn't do anything about it. And this incenses Absalom. He hates Amnon for assaulting his sister. We can understand that. And eventually, he kills Amnon. After he kills him, Absalom free, uh, flees from Jerusalem for years until David finally lets him back into the city. But at this point, Absalom's heart is just so fully turned against his father that he just wants to kill his father, David, at this point and take over as king himself. Well, over time, Absalom gains power in Jerusalem, and he's able to sway a sizable group against David. And it's a large enough group to David, that to David it feels like, at least, that thousands are against him. You can see that in verse 6. So this time, it's David who's fleeing the city and not Absalom. Well, as you can imagine, David is, is just at the end of himself. He is a rapist for a son a daughter who has been raped by his son, a murderous traitor in his other son. His own people are betraying him and wanting to kill him. So he's on the run. And it is in the midst of this painful rejection that he sits down to pen these words here in Psalm 3. He's a broken man in search of something strong and solid to cling to when everything dear in his life is being ripped away. We all ought to wrestle 
with this this morning. There will be a day, maybe it's today, when this is your experience, when everything is just slipping from your grasp, when you feel rejected, a lost job, a lost loved one, lost friendships. Brandywine, we have to have enough, a big enough vision of God to absorb realities like this because they are coming. But when trouble is present and God seems distant, what is David doing? David's praying. He's on his knees and he's praying. David is feeling what some of you, some of us are feeling this morning, distant from God, confused about your lot in life, confused about some of the fault lines in our society right now, perplexed about why if God is so good, the whole world and tragically, seemingly even the church seems to be hurtling off the rails right now. The undertow of this text just says, Christian, pray. Christian, unload your cares onto God because he cares for you. So in our church, we have this thing called the big idea. It's kind of just like the biggest concept to take away from you, hopefully really portable and concise as just a memorable truth to take away from you. So here's today's big idea for us. It's this. Let your troubles trigger your prayers. Let your troubles trigger your prayers. And we're going to unpack this from three angles. First, pray for protection when you're desperate, verses 1 to 3. Second, pray for renewal when you're drained, verses 4 to 6. And then third, pray for vengeance when you're distressed, verses 7 and 8. So the odds right now for David are certainly stacked against him. You can hear the heaviness through his pen. Verse 1, oh Lord, how many are my foes? This is impossible. Many are rising up against me. He's desperate. You know, this may have been on a real battlefield for David, but the undercurrent of this text pulls us in the same exact direction. At least it should. We're all up against impossible odds every day. So first this morning, pray for protection when you're desperate. Pray for protection when you're desperate. You may not fully grasp why in the world the odds are stacked against you right now. Maybe your income just isn't cutting it. Maybe your health just keeps slipping. Maybe your marriage is disintegrating in front of your very eyes. Maybe you're unemployed and nothing is coming available. Maybe you're un unable to conceive. I don't know. It could be a million things for you. But when you're desperate and your prayers feel and sound like little more than groans, pray them anyway. God knows. He knew for David. He knows for you. I can't give you a fully satisfying answer for why you're going through what you're going through right now. But I do know this. If you're a Christian, you never have to wonder why something is happening in your life. The answer is always, always, always to make you more like Jesus and help you make it all the way to Jesus. That is why anything and everything are happening in your life every second of every day. So the odds are stacked against David. And what does he do? His first instinct is to go to the Lord in prayer. This is so instructive for us, I think. Prayer, one commentator says, prayer is the way that we slug our way through trouble. David's prayer is for protection when he is desperate. Most of us don't start with prayer, though, do we? It's a last resort. This is problematic because our thoughts and actions in the midst of hardship 
have the power to make or break us. So I want to ask you this. What are you becoming by the things that you are doing when you're desperate? What are you becoming by the things that you're doing when you're desperate? The one who turns to pornography to distract from his pain will find himself even more desperate and hollow. The one who flits to alcohol to numb her pain will find herself needing and wanting more until she's spending too much and destroying her health. The one who turns to their smartphone instead of prayer will turn around in a decade or two and it will dawn on them how much their life has been wasted. David, in his desperation, turns to prayer. I'd encourage you, me, to do the same. When you're tempted to reach for one of those things, or whatever it is for you, whatever counterfeit savior you have in your life, when you're tempted to reach for a distraction, instead receive the gift of God's presence through his word and through prayer. Decide now that when trouble comes, you're going to receive the Lord's presence and not reach for the world's distractions. This is kind of a hard and sad reality to admit, uh, but my wife Miriam's father passed away in a tragic construction accident just about two years ago now. But before the accident, he had left her some voicemails. Maybe some of you have voicemails from your parents saved. I'd encourage you to save them. She still has hers saved on her phone. And why, two years after his death, does she still have these voicemails on her phone? Because she doesn't want to forget his sweet voice, his sweet southern twang, the way he called her honey, the way he always made a kissing sound when hanging up the phone. She's tried to talk me into doing that, and I steadfastly refuse. <laughs> That's for her dad and those voicemails. She doesn't want to forget. So every once in a while, she'll play them again, and the tears will flow. This is what David is doing here in verses 3 and 4. He's reminding himself of who God truly is. And he's painting this prayerful word portrait of him. David turned to the Lord and look what the Lord was for him. Look at verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Shield, glory, lifter. When you're in trouble, when you are desperate... Remember who your God is. Play the voicemail of Psalm 3 over and over again in your head. And remember again, the Lord is a protector, a shield. Listen, none of us are in a cave under threat of attack right now. So what will a protection prayer look like for us? While it's okay to pray for physical deliverance from our trials, the Psalms are very instructive about that, it's more important to pray for spiritual protection in our trials. Trouble in this life is inescapable. You probably realize this by now. It's a sad and frustrating reality. That's why we have a book like Ecclesiastes. Trouble is coming and it's always coming. This is what Jesus tells us in John 16. He says, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So knowing that trouble is coming, we need to make a plan right now, even in this hour, for what to do when it inevitably comes. Let your troubles trigger your prayers. And let your prayers be directed toward praying for God to shield your soul from bowing to the temptations that are coming 
our way to take us away from Jesus. We're praying for protection for our souls in trials. Protection from the temptation to believe that Jesus just isn't worth it. Protection from believing that God's promise to preserve us in the end is just a myth. Pray for protection from those lies from the devil. This one little prayer could change our lives if we prayed it all day, every day. Lord, shield me from this temptation. Like David, shield me from this. You are my shield, my protector. All of our temptations, we all have varied and different temptations and inclinations. They all have a common theme, though. They say, there is no help in God right now. And so we're tempted to bow to whatever that temptation is. But to lie, though, God is a shield in times of temptation. Pray for a shield. When that little spark of lust in your heart inflames, don't believe the lie that there is no help. There is. When the match of discontent and envy is struck, when you're surrounded by people more successful than you, with bigger homes than you, or bigger churches than you, or bigger 401ks than you, or more Bitcoin than you. It's probably a good time when other people have more Bitcoin than you right now. Not a good time for all of you Bitcoin owners. But during this season, whatever it is that you may be up against, pray that God would shield you from those sins that threaten to take you down a path away from finding your satisfaction in God. Underneath your breath, say, you, O oh Lord, are a shield for me. Protect my soul, please. That's what David does there in verse 4. You can see it. Maybe just a little bit louder than a whisper. In verse 4, he says, I cried aloud to the Lord. There he is, David, sitting all by himself in a cave, talking out loud to God, crying aloud. Why shouldn't we? But the Lord is more than a protector. He's a glory giver. The, the word for glory here carries with it the idea of, of weightiness, of, like, of heaviness. Imagine the encouragement this must have been for David to hear that God was his glory in this moment. Here's his son and all of his cronies aiming to steal, steal away from David all of his kingly glory. They've chased him out of his throne. They've chased him out of his city and into hiding. If David were to look into a mirror while he was writing this prayer, all traces of glory and prestige would have been wiped away. The things that he had built his identity on have all washed away, accumulated power and glory and wealth. But now, no crown, no robe, no servants, face probably covered in sweat and smeared with dirt. David's glory was gone, but God's glory wasn't. In verse 3, Look at it. The Lord offers David his glory. David's earthly identity had been shattered. But he's learning here what our church has been singing recently, a new song that we've learned. And here are a few of the lyrics. I think you'll be able to see them on screen. My worth, David would say, my glory. My glory is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone. My worth is not in skill or name in win or lose, in pride or shame. As summer flowers, we fade and die. Fame, youth, and beauty hurry by. So I will not boast in wealth or might or human wisdom's fleeting light. The point is, 
don't source your worth in finite things. Don't source your worth in finite things. All of that is kind of depressing until you learn that you can sort of relocate your glory. You can outsource your worth. In fact, if you want any sanity at all, you're going to need to outsource your glory. This is the truth that David is preaching to himself in this moment. His worth is detached from his position and his performance. At this point, he's already lost his position as king. And by this time in his life, David, get this, David is a lying, adulterous, murderous man who sat by and did nothing while his daughter was raped. It does not get any lower than that. But gloriously, this tells us that none of us are beyond usefulness because we approach God wrapped in the identity of another. God offers us his glory too in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, for God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We, like David, might have a scandalous past, but can have a saved soul because we are not accepted on account of our glory, but on the merit of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Our failures, no matter the cause, do not undermine God's plans and purposes for our lives. So when you're desperate, remember to pray in the reality of this wonder. In your unworthiness, you are counted worthy by faith in the Son of God. Don't you feel this desperation when you have yelled at your kids for the four millionth time in a day? And that load of laundry you started never made it out of the washer, and it stinks. And dinner is burning on the stove, and all those things are happening at once on the same day. You just feel like a big, fat failure. In those moments, Christian, rest in what God, your glory giver, thinks about you, not what you think about you. Rest in what God thinks about you, not in what you think about you. You may even feel like you've sinned your way out of being able to, to cry out desperately to God. But he's given you his glory. And because of that, he's given you bold access to him, despite your failures. Your value, this is the end of that song uh, that I quoted a few minutes ago. Your value, your glory fixed, your ransom paid, your access won at the cross. It's a great song. So your book doesn't sell. So your post gets no likes. So your promotion doesn't happen. So you're not asked to be an officer in the church or to go to Minneapolis. Or so your book does sell. Or your post gets a million likes. Or you are asked to be an officer in the church. Or you are asked to go to Minneapolis. So what? Your truth isn't wrapped up in your glory or your lack of it. It's wrapped up in King Jesus. Don't locate your glory in good things that can be gone. When your dignity and worth are questioned or attacked, pray. When you're desperate, pray to your protector, your glory giver, and finally here, to your head lifter. The Lord is your head lifter. It's there in verse 3. The effect of being gifted the glory of another is having your head lifted. 
One of my kids, my youngest, is particularly oriented to shame. And after she fails in some way, she hangs her head and maintains a sad countenance long after it is necessary. Many, many, many times I have gotten down on one knee and just sort of like try to get under there with her hanging head and like pull her chin up and make eye contact with her and say, hey, look, I love you. I got you. It's okay. You're my girl. When I see you, I see the daughter I love, not the little girl who failed. This is what the Lord is doing to David in his desperation. He's getting down and like, David, look, look, look at me. I love you. I got you. It's okay. And Christian friend who has made a mess of his or her life, the Lord through Jesus Christ is the lifter of your head. Today, he's wanting you to feel desperate so that through prayer, you make eye contact as you hear him say, I love you, I got you, it's okay. Lift your head when I see you. I see my son's perfection and not your sinful pattern. It's good news. Some of us this morning need to chin up because Jesus was lifted up in our place. In my place, condemned he stood. Outsource outsource your worth and your glory to Jesus and live in the freedom of that and lift your head. Before God's throne, you have a strong and perfect plea. So finally here in verse 4, David finishes listening to that voicemail that reminds him of all of the wonderful things that his God is. And the last one that he has uh, to list here is that God is an accessible listener. Look at verse 4. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered from his holy hill. I think what's really interesting about David saying this right here is that David is hightailing it out of Jerusalem where that holy hill was. There really was a holy hill on top of which was the tabernacle and the future temple would be there. That place, that holy hill, is far away from where David is at right now. But the geographical distance between David and that hill meant nothing to God. It's because the Lord, no matter where we're at, is an accessible listener. No matter where you are at in your relationship with him, or relationship with those around you, he's accessible. You may be in a deep, dark hole of sin that seems inescapable to you right now. You may have dug yourself a big old pit by your own stupid actions and you do not know how to get out. You may have spent the past year or two running away from God, but you're not so far that he can't hear. Don't believe the lie that you can't come to him in the righteousness of King Jesus. He wants to protect you from the eternal damning consequences of your sin. So in desperation, cry aloud to him. He's near to the brokenhearted. So in times of desperation, pray for protection because your Lord is a protector. He's a glory giver, a head lifter, and an accessible listener. Number two, pray for renewal when you are drained. So in desperation, David is praying. And now look what happens as a result. He is renewed. I think I have this on screen for you here. I lay down and slept. That is restfulness. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people. That is fearlessness. Restless, restfulness and fearlessness. As I have surveyed my life in this past week, these are two of the biggest needs I have. Restfulness 
and fearlessness. Restfulness of soul and body with all the anxieties of life and work. It can be hard to sleep. Most Americans live at a pace of life that is draining, if not altogether crushing. Most of us are restless and fearful, if we're honest, instead of restful and fearless. We need renewal. We need to listen to the voicemail of Psalm 3. And remember, the bridge between desperation and restoration is paved with the stones of renewal, restfulness, and fearlessness that can only be accessed on our knees through prayer. Church, let our troublesome times trigger our desperate prayers. This past week, I read of an article uh, about Bessie. Bessie was a Burmese python that accidentally was set loose in an Idaho apartment complex. A posse of plumbers was called, to find the eight, called in to find the eight-foot reptile among the walls and pipes of the 57,000-square-foot complex. They found Bessie loitering in the ceiling in the apartment below her proper home. For two weeks, the residents had been nervously checking beneath beds and under sheets for the huge snake. After hearing the news of Bessie's discovery, one resident confessed, well, we'll definitely sleep better. Huh, you don't say. <laughs> Until a threat is removed, it's hard to feel secure. Until a threat is removed, it's hard to feel secure. But the interesting thing about this psalm is that David didn't need the threat to be removed in order to rest, to be fearless. The threat remained. He's on the run. Absalom and his posse are on the loose. And what does David do? He sleeps. No Tylenol PM, no melatonin, just sleep. Restful sleep. If you are experiencing sleepless nights, and an anxious heart, I wonder if you might consider allowing your troubles to trigger your prayers as you lay on that bed. Recently, I found myself following David's example more closely in the middle of my own sleepless nights. I cried out to the Lord about my distresses, personal flaws, and sins that frustrate me, physical limitations, my marriage, my kids, my church's burdens and needs, our world's deep and probing issues, our friends in Uvalde and Ukraine. By God's grace, I slept. That's what David is doing. He's drawing near when he is desperate and drained. Still, there's a problem here that David is asking to be removed. And it's our third and final point for today. Pray for vengeance when you're distressed. Look at verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Whew. This kind of makes some of us squirm, I would bet. But I think it's really interesting that God preserved this particular prayer for us. Wouldn't this be the one that you sort of edit out of the canon because it's a little bit too raw and too violent? Like one commentator said, some of us get bent out of shape because the enemies are going to need an orthodontist, getting their teeth knocked in. One of the implicit takeaways here is to pray our feelings, to pray our feelings. There is an emotional honesty there in verse 7, isn't there? Now, most of us want to say, 
now David, we mustn't be angry. We mustn't be angry at our enemies. But that's not real life, is it? Which of us weren't incensed with the desperate tragedy in Uvalde? If that didn't make you angry, you're not doing it right. Psalm 3 tells us that we ought to pray our fears and even our feelings, not stuff them or deny them. Here we find the right place and the right way to process the feelings of hurt and anger. Through prayer, that's how you process feelings of hurt and anger, on your knees. Don't idolize your emotions, but don't stuff them either. Process your feelings through prayer. Still though, Break their faces, David? Come on, dude. You serious? Well, first, the breaking of teeth and cheek, I think, is a direct reference to the way these people were sinning earlier in the psalm. You can see it there in verse 2. They were using their mouths to mock God and his ability to save David. But even still, does the violence in verse 7 disturb you a little bit? I can totally empathize. I understand this impulse. But we need to understand that this is the destruction to anything or anyone that stands in the way of God stepping in to rescue his kids. Maybe this seems kind of dark to you, especially if you're new to the Bible or new to Christianity. I don't know, bashing in the faces of the wicked. Is that really necessary, God? Can't there be another way? But you got to wonder how the victims of Hitler and Stalin and Mao would have responded to hearing that their regimes would be wiped out and their teeth kicked in. I bet they would have rejoiced. I bet they would have partied. I bet they would have sung and shouted praise to God because there can be no peace when wicked men still exist. It's a sad reality. And let's not get super sloppy with our definition of wicked either. We can like assign that to somebody else too easily, I think. Sure, Hitler, Mao, and Stalin, those were wicked dudes. But each of us is wicked in our own way, aren't we? In our hearts. Sinful darkness lurks in each of us. Wicked, wicked from God's perspective, is any action that goes against his good and kind plan laid out for us in this book. This is why Jesus had to get his teeth kicked in in our place, because we were the wicked ones. You get a real sense for how God views our sin from the foot of the cross. He hates it, and he will violently rid it from this world. You need a savior from that wrath, and so do I. So while the reality of verse 7 is pretty bleak, at least for the wicked, it is utterly necessary, and God is good and right to do this. Plus, this is the reality of the sort of like flip side of what you're praying for when you pray for God's kingdom to come. That's a happy, joyful prayer, right? Let your kingdom come, let your will be done. When you're praying that, you're praying for God's enemies to be destroyed. How else will God's kingdom come if not the destruction of all that is opposed to his kingdom? The certainty of the prayers in verses 7 and 8 should both sober us and excite us. Change is coming. Salvation is on its way. When the reign of the sun finally touches down, God's going to rule and reign forever, and we're going to be safe forever. The victorious, joyful end of the world then should infect our worldview now. It should color the way that we watch the news, 
or that we listen to our podcasts, or that we view politics and mourn the condition of our world, the end should inform our present. We may not always quite know what to make of current events, but we can know where history is headed. Salvation and blessing for all of God's people in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. By keeping the long view on the reign of the Son of God and by preaching this to one another, we can stay together and stay sane while we wait for God's justice to rain down through His Son. You know, one of the amazing advantages of preaching verse by verse through the Bible called expositional preaching. I know you guys are familiar with that here. Preaching this way doesn't allow us to get away with like the seltzer water versions of God. You can tell yourself all that you want that your cherry seltzer tastes like Dr. Pepper. You know that's not true. It might be lower in calories, but it is far lower in taste quality. And listen, I'm a big seltzer fan, okay? So not knocking, uh, uh, knocking your LaCroix or your Bubbly or whatever, but it ain't the same. You taste that stuff, and you know it's not the real thing. There is no robust flavor in a can of seltzer. Someone said that opening a can of LaCroix and taking a sip is like being on opposite sides and opposite floors of a house and someone whispering, Jerry. That's how much flavor... <laughs> there is in seltzer. It just does not have the same crisp, robust flavor as the regular ice-cold Dr. Pepper. <sighs> We're almost ready for lunch. But I feel like we might be tempted to have this really seltzered vision of God. If all we do is listen to the little truisms created by some of the popular Christian readers we read or tweeters we tweet or celebrity Christians we follow, there's maybe, maybe a whisper of the truth of God in there, but you can barely taste him. But when we read and when we preach really carefully through all of the scriptures, we get a very robust and complex picture of God, not a clean and safe and seltzered picture. In this text, the Lord saves and he breaks the teeth of the wicked. It's both joyful and grievous. I love this quote from Dale Davis. He says, this tells us that God is not a mere three-letter word. You're going to have to follow me with this one because it's, like, it's kind of complicated. He uses big words. I don't know if you're with me. If you could click to the next slide. I don't even know where y'all are at, but there it is. <laughs> this tells us that God is not a mere three-letter word. The God of the Bible is not a formless blob of celestial protoplasm. He said it, not me not some sort of cosmic jello with a sickly smile. He has a nature, a character, positive and negative. He is not the grand relativist, but the living extremist. Let the flaming passion of these words slither down into the throat of your soul and see how different this virile biblical God is from the sentimental deity men imagine. There is nothing bland about Yahweh. The violent picture of God in Psalm 3 is in direct opposition to most of what we see in the aisles of the Christian section at Barnes & Noble or even the virtual Christian section at Amazon. It reminds me of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe when Mr. Beaver tells Susan that Aslan, the ruler of Narnia, is a great lion. Susan is surprised since she assumed that Aslan was a man. 
She then tells Mr. Beaver, I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And she asks Mr. Beaver if Aslan is safe, to which Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Because he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. God is not safe, but he is good. This fact should help us discern how to process the distresses in our lives. Uncomfortable as the idea of God's judgment may make us feel, it's actually a great hope for all of us. If David was going to be delivered, the wicked were going to have to be judged, get their teeth knocked in, as it were. In order for there to be any kind of party, like the Bible says is coming at the end of time, for all of those in Christ, for us to enjoy that full out in peace and joy, the wicked are going to have to be dealt with. God's people will only have ultimate comfort if their oppressors are dealt with. Del Davis goes on to say, until the enemy is destroyed, God's people will have no genuine security. People, we all may bemoan this teaching, but unless there is decisive judgment, there is no solid salvation. But verse 8 reminds us that we can all rejoice that God is going to right all the wrongs. All the sad things become untrue. This is exactly what David is praying for in verse 8. And this is something that we really need to hold on to at this moment in our nation's history and really our world's history. We are all grieved by aspects of what's going on right now in our country. Drag queens twerking for elementary schoolers, and this is celebrated. The celebration and defending of the mutilation of children's sex organs. Our right to brutally kill babies, little people, is not only allowed, but celebrated by Congress to standing ovations, no less. Racist rants in all directions and race under every bush, too. But it's reassuring to know that, in the end, God is going to rectify it. And it's okay to pray for vengeance on this nonsense, for God to come in full force and rid our world of it. David prays for it here. In the New Testament, God answers the prayer. He says in Romans 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Notice, David prays for God to enact vengeance. In other words, it's not our job. It's not your job to put people in their place or kick their teeth in, be it with your feet or your keyboard. It's God's job. You and I don't have that right or responsibility. We must fully rely on God to bring about justice in his time and with his methods. You must hold to this right now. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So as we conclude here, and as we continue to endure, Christians, just know that there will be pain. There will be hardship. There will be tears and heartache cried my fair share in the last couple of weeks. But of all people, we Christians can keep these things in perspective. It is disconcerting to watch the world unravel at breakneck speeds, and we want it to be different. But the mending keeps not coming. Everything seems to be continually fragmenting more and more. But Christian Psalm 3 and the cross are proof that the mending will come. David's eventual son came in the form of a baby and grew up to suffer the monstrosity of the cross for crimes that he did not commit. 
we can know that the mending will come because it has already begun, whether or not we can see it right now. While Jesus was hanging on that cross, he was mending history's most violent relational split, the one between us and a holy God, the tear between humanity and God himself. And so the mending began on that day, and he will come again to complete the mending process, pulling it all back together in a cosmic salvation that will bless all of his people, verse 8. There is coming a time when all of these statements, all of these promises in this chapter will be fulfilled in Jesus, and all of, the, all of those of us who are in Jesus will enjoy them in the new earth. And the promise of verse 8 will become the reality we will all live forever. The salvation of God and the blessing of his people. And the band can come up now as we conclude. In the meantime, as we wait for the full mending to come, church. With head lifted and glory granted and soul protected, let your troubles trigger your prayers. Will you pray with me? Oh God, we need your help. We are spring-loaded to go to all the wrong places when we're in trouble. We want to numb ourselves or distract ourselves. And we struggle. We struggle to come to you. And we wish we didn't. We wish it was different. We need your help. Remind us when we are in trouble to come to you, that we would run to the shadow of the Almighty and find respite and rest under that gigantic, beautiful, restful shadow. We pray this for the good of these saints here and for the glory of your Son. In his name we pray. Amen.